Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 10, 22 to 42. Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I did tell you and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these works are you stoning me? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, isn't it written in your law? I said you are gods? If he called those whom the word of God came to gods, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. This way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Then they were trying again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. So he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Well, good morning, Candeo. My name is Jordan Prahoda. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Candeo. And uh, one of the things that's true about me is I love fires, fires and fireplaces. I grew up in Southeast Iowa and my dad always had a fire going. And there was something about like the crackling of the fire and the, the heat and warmth that was therapeutic to my soul. Um, <clears throat> so we actually, Casey and I, a handful of years ago, got a, a different house and in that house, came a fireplace. And so super excited. And over the last couple of years, we've been, you know, lighting a ton of fires. And it was getting to that point, it's like, okay, it's dirty. We need to do the chimney sweep thing and get this thing cleaned out. So the guy came over uh, and after he had cleaned and done his assessment, he came to me and <laughs> I didn't have a category for what he shared with me that day. <laughs> he looked at me and he goes, um, unfortunately, I have to tell you that you should never uh, burn another fire in your fireplace like ever again. <laughs> and I looked at him, I'm like, man, never feels like a real long time, sir, you know. Uh, but so maybe you're like me and you're like, man, uh, 
I love fires. I, I hurt for you. Yeah, I, I feel that. Scott Rieger, actually one of our elders, offered to start a GoFundMe page. And he's like, dude, I'll be your first donor. Whatever it takes. He also loves fires. I don't think that's what that's there for, but that's okay. I love the heart behind it. Uh, we've got an electric fireplace. We're getting by. We're fine. Um, so maybe you're like me in that, or maybe you're in the other camp. Or you're like, cry me a river. It's a fire. You'll get over it. But either way, there's something that's just inherently true about fires, Okay. There's three crucial components for a fire to be started and sustained. Probably learned this in maybe elementary school. It's called the fire triangle. Three things, heat, oxygen, and fuel. Those are the three that create the chemical reaction, fire. And if you pull out any one of those three, if you don't have oxygen, you won't get a fire. And what we're going to see in our passage today in John chapter 10 is there is three crucial components to who Jesus is. Now, these are not everything that's true about Jesus, but if you take out any one of these three components about Jesus, you're no longer talking about Jesus. If you miss any one of these three, you miss everything about Jesus. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 10. Uh, the context of what's going on here, we've walked through the first 21 verses and Jesus has very, very clearly said, I am the good shepherd. And actually this is kind of part three of that theme. But in between verse 21 and verse 22, actually two months uh, has passed in this time. Uh, John's really purposeful in creating landmarks for us. And so our last landmark was uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And now a couple months later, we're at the Festival of Dedication. And this is going to be the, the last uh, public confrontation that Jesus has with the Jewish crowd in his public ministry. It's the last one that John records. And it's at the uh, festival of dedication. Now, this is also called the festival of lights. People would light candles um, all over their house for this, uh, but you might know it as Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. Uh, I don't know if you know the history of Hanukkah real quick. It's not an Old Testament festival, so you're not going to find this in the Old Testament. This is in between the Old and New Testament. The 400 years of silence from God, things got really dark for the Jews. Uh, they were persecuted. And at one point, a monarch by the name of Antiochus came and uh, was determined to sweep away the Jewish people and their religion and just wipe them out. Uh, but a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus led a revolt. They took back Jerusalem, rededicated the temple. And then now every year since then, they look back to that time and remember the great deliverance that took place. And they celebrate with an eight day festival called Hanukkah. So that doesn't have a ton to do with the passage. I just figured you guys want to know where Hanukkah came from. I was interested. Um, but it was during this festival um, that Jesus was walking through the temple and he walked into Solomon's colonnade, which just picture uh, just kind of a roof structure with pillars and on the cold winter rains, uh, they would have shelter. And this is also a place where a lot of informal preaching and teaching would happen. So Jesus would often be found here. And the Jewish people surrounded Jesus, cornered him and asked him, are you the Messiah or not? Now, I believe at this point in the book of John, the Jews had made up their mind about Jesus, that they were just trying to trap him in a public setting to get him to say the wrong thing in, in front of a lot of people. And so they ask him, are you the Messiah or not? And the answer 
is yes. That's a crucial component of Jesus, number one, right? Jesus is Messiah, but he is not the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting. They were living in a situation where they were under Roman occupation and they were looking for a Messiah to come and free them from the Roman oppression that they were feeling. But Jesus hadn't done this yet. And so they looked to him and go, all right, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus answers them. And he says this, I did tell you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name testify about me. Two testimonies about Jesus being the Messiah. First are the words I did tell you and the works, what he's done. So Jesus has been teaching and proclaiming the good news that the kingdom has come and that ultimately he is the Messiah. So his words, but also his works, the miracles that he had been doing, blind people are seen. People who could not hear can now hear. People who were paralyzed are dancing in the streets. And Jesus is pointing to those things, his words and his works. And he's saying, there's your evidence as to whether or not I am the Messiah. But the problem for these people is that they just simply refused to believe. And what their unbelief shows us in verse 26 is this. Jesus says, you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. They're not in the flock of Jesus. Our passage last week, John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Those who are in the flock of Christ hear their good shepherd. They follow him and implicit in that is they believe he is Messiah, who he says he is. So again, again, this is kind of like part three of the good shepherd. So he he transitions from talking to the Jewish crowd. Now he's talking to his flock. So Jesus is not only the Messiah, he is also the good shepherd. And he says this to his flock in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, say that again, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So, We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. If you're new this week to Candea, we've been talking about Jesus is the good shepherd. Some, some crucial characters to know in this illustration is Jesus is the good shepherd. There's hired hands who don't really care about the flock, but then there's also a wolf. There's a wolf and John talks about this wolf in verses 11 through 13. Let me read this. I think this will be helpful. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then it says, the hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. So there's a wolf. The Bible is very clear on who this wolf is. His name is Satan and he comes to lie, steal and destroy And he takes our eyes off of God. He twists God's good gifts in our eyes and he he makes us forget who God is and what God has done for us. Our enemy is real. But at the same time, we've got a good shepherd who provides, but not only provides, protects his flock. Think about verses 11 through 13. If you can just kind of like look at that in your Bible. Why 
was the wolf able to snatch the sheep? It's because the good shepherd wasn't present. The hired hand was present and he abandoned the flock. Without a good shepherd, we are vulnerable sheep, but the security of the sheep is found in the presence of the good shepherd. And our good shepherd in these verses gives us powerful promises, a powerful promise. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Eternal life is given to the sheep as a gift. It is not earned, it's given as a gift. But by definition, eternal life has to be eternal, which means it cannot be broken, right? This isn't I give you conditional life, it's I give you eternal life, which means, Christians, it is impossible for anyone or anything to take you from the good shepherd for all of eternity. We as believers, yes, we will sin and we will stumble, but we have a good shepherd who promises he loses none of his flock. The thing that sustains you with God is not your commitment to him, but his commitment to you. The sheep's security not found in their own power, but in the power and the promise and the presence of the good shepherd. This is great news. This is really, really good news. But I wanna get really practical this morning. I wanna ask the question, that is true, but what happens when you don't feel like Jesus is holding on to you? When it actually feels like maybe Jesus is very distant from you and he's not even there. To talk about this, I, I wanna illustrate this a little bit. Um, I, uh, I brought a picture with me of my family. So this is old school uh, family prohoda. My sister, I don't even know if has been born yet. I mean, obviously at this point. So uh, I, I don't know if you wanna guess which one is me, right? I am the one that my dad is holding. My brother Luke's on the left, Sean's on the right. And Sean apparently is just no pants in it at the ocean, I guess. So just living the dream uh, at the age where that's acceptable, I guess. Um, but so my, my mom sent me this picture. I was grateful for it. But my dad's holding me. And this, is, this was very common in the Prohoda family. And maybe you had a dad like this, but my dad was always holding us. I, I actually called him and talked to him on the phone this past week. And, and he said that like while we were at the pool, when we were real little, he'd like have his hands underneath our thighs and just kind of like cruise around the pool with us. Uh, but then as we got older, we kind of graduated to more of like sitting on dad's shoulders as he kind of held us, right? And it was a fun thing. And he told us as we grew as kids, like we just wanted to get higher and higher on him. If you're dead, you know you're, you become a human jungle gym. Um, but I'm sure there was moments for me as I was sitting on my dad's shoulders where it probably just like felt like I was gonna fall. We were like, whoa, whoa, you know? They actually, they actually have made roller coasters that like with this thing in mind. So there's a roller coaster at SeaWorld apparently called Mako. It's the world's tallest, or uh, sorry, uh, Orlando's tallest roller coaster. And, in, and obviously they do all the things, but, but the only thing holding you in is like this like lap bar deal that comes down, but nothing around the shoulder. So you got nothing. And so they run off this to, to make you feel like you're gonna fall to create the adrenaline rush, right? The same thing happens when you're sitting on your dad's shoulders, where at times it feels, feels like you are going to fall. But as I talked to my dad on the phone, it became abundantly clear. I was going nowhere. 
My dad, with his strong hands on my little thighs, I was locked in. hundred percent, my dad's like, my son's not falling off my shoulders. Christian, Jesus always has a grip on you. What can separate us from Christ? What can separate us from Christ? Paul tells us in Romans 8, what can, what can separate us from Christ? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, Jesus' grip on you will always be infinitely greater than your grip on him. And you may not feel it, but let Jesus speak this truth over you. In verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. What's the implication of that? I think it's real simple. I think the implications for us as believers is that we can calm down and rest. We as sheep can find comfort in our good shepherd who holds us eternally. Now these verses, there's been a lot of theological debate over the years about these verses, if you're familiar with it. And I do believe there is a time and place to wrestle through these truths. But I, I also really believe, I think the purpose of what Jesus is doing here is he's looking his sheep in his eyes going, I got you. You can rest. This should not drive us towards anxiety and fear. This should drive us towards peace and thankfulness. We don't have to stay up in the middle of the night as believers wondering, will my salvation slip away? Will my father abandon me? It's an emphatic no. We have no need to fear of any of those things in this life. No matter what happens, we have this anchor. The sheep's ultimate security is not in themselves, but it is in the good shepherd who holds onto them eternally. So Jesus... He is our Messiah. He is the good shepherd. And finally, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here. Jesus is God. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. That is a massive statement. Near context, what, what Jesus just got done talking about is sheep shepherd language. So what he's saying that we are one and we bring the sheep into the fold and we care for them and hold on to them eternally. They are one in union in those things, right? But make no mistake in verse 30, Jesus is claiming deity. He is claiming to be God. He could not be more clear. I, I think people out there might say, hey, as you read through the gospels, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Like, like he didn't say that himself. I disagree. I do not think it could be more clear. We, when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about three persons, but one essence, one being, one nature, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, all God. 
The specific purpose of the book of John is so that you would believe, but, and also believe that Jesus is God. And so this is what Jesus drops. And it is a bombshell in the laps of the Jewish crowd. Because what do they do? Verse 31, again, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. So not the first time, <laughs> again, this happens multiple times in the, in the gospel accounts where Jesus says or does something and they pick up stones to kill him. Now, I think maybe if you've read through the gospels, you, you might just kind of breeze over that. Where it's like, okay, they tried to kill him again. Can we just stop it? Like that would be an intense moment, right? A guy just said something and all of a sudden in today's context, it's like everyone just pulled a gun on him and they're ready to kill him. This is a crazy scene that's unfolding. Why? Why are they ready to kill him? Well, Jesus asks them, he says, I've shown you many good works from the father for which of these works are you stoning me? Which I kind of love actually. Like in the, in, a, in the midst of a heated, crazy moment, Jesus doesn't even flinch. And he responds to them calmly. It feels a bit sarcastically and kind of punchy, right? Because he knew that they didn't have an answer. What, what are these works are you going to kill me for? The guy I just healed over here or the woman I just healed over there? Well, what's their answer? We aren't stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Again, if it's not clear to us, it was pretty clear to them. Jesus is claiming deity, which means that he's either God or he is a blasphemer. And again, I believe that the Jewish people at this point in the narrative had made up their mind that he was a blasphemer, that there was no way he was God. And what's the punishment for blasphemy? Leviticus 24. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the resident alien or the native. So the Jewish people would have had this in their back of their mind as they're getting ready to pick up stones and kill Jesus. But I think there's a huge irony here that I just kind of want to point out. Jesus is getting blamed for blasphemy and is about to be killed because he's claiming deity. But in all reality, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, which means that to say or believe anything about Jesus that, that says he is anything less than God is actually blasphemy. They had it all backwards. They had it all backwards. But I, I want to slow down here a bit because it's easy for me a couple thousand year la years later to throw that out there. But I want to slow down and just put us in the Jewish people's shoes for a bit. Because yes, I mean, the Jewish crowd and especially the leaders, there was a majority, it seems like, that were proud and blind and they had just made up their mind about Jesus. But there, man, I have to believe there had to have been this subset of a crowd that was genuinely confused because their view of God was monotheistic. God is Yahweh. There is one God. And they were living in religious cultures and beliefs where people were believing that there were multiple gods, polytheistic. And so they just kept beating this drum that there is one God, Yahweh. There is one God and his name is Yahweh. So think about this. As Jesus comes onto the scene, 
their monotheism did not have a category for the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They didn't have a category that the Messiah would come and be God himself. Jesus saying the statement, I and the Father are one, is shattering their universe in so many different ways. And if I'm being honest, if we're being honest, if, if I was in that crowd knowing what the Jewish people knew, hearing these things from Jesus, I probably would have done the same thing. And it doesn't make the Jews right in it, but it gives me sympathy. They were wrestling with these things. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is so polarizing. They didn't know what to do with him. They didn't have a category that God had made himself man. So they decided we're just going to kill him. We're just going to kill him. So what was Jesus's response? Picture the scene, bunch of people holding stones, looking at Jesus and he answers them. Verse 34, isn't it written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called those whom the word of God came to, uh, if he called those whom the word of God came to gods and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the father set apart and sent into this world? Because I said, I am the son of God. Now there's times in Jesus's ministry and in the gospels where he says things that are pretty confusing. And you're like, man, I don't know if I understand that at first glance. I'm really grateful for passages like these where just it's immediately clear. And me as a preacher, I don't even have to really unpack it because we just read that and we go, I totally know what he's talking about. I hear some people laughing. That's sarcasm. <laughs> that, that is wildly confusing, right? What in the world is Jesus talking about? He's talking about gods, like lower case G gods, Right? What is he doing here? Well, what he's doing is he's giving a rational and specific argument. This is a type of argument um, that would have been very common back then. It was a greater to lesser than, argument, uh, lesser than argument or uh, kind of like, if this is true, then this also must be true. So for example, i.e., uh, if you like ice cream, then you also like four queens, right? That's just... That has, that has to be true, right? I, side note, I am hyped that Four Queens is open again. Uh, the snow is melting and snowstorms are back. So all is right in the world, amen? If you're a college student and you have not been to Four Queens, go now. I get the German chocolate. It sounds weird. It's worth, it's just worth trying. Uh, what are we talking about? Arguments. Uh, <laughs> I've got, I've got a German chocolate salsa. I'm actually waiting for me at home in, our, in my freezer. Um, if this is true, then this must also be true, right? Greater to lesser. That's, that's the argument. Now, what's the specific argument that Jesus is giving? Well, he's quoting Psalm 82. Psalm 82. It's kind of an obscure psalm. You're like, what in the world are you doing? But Psalm 82, the context is that judgment is coming on Israel by God and specifically on the rulers or judges who were corrupt. There was a ton of injustice going on uh, in the land at that time. But in verse six, you get this statement. It says, I said, this is God talking, you are gods, you are all sons of the most high. So what's Jesus doing here? God's 
in this context is referring to representatives of God, the sons of the most high. God has delegated authority to them. So in a sense, they are representatives or small case G gods. Now, unfortunately for them at that time, they were using it for evil and not for good. But the point is that Jesus calls them gods. Well, what's this mean for Jesus's argument? One commentary says it this way. Jesus's point in quoting Psalm 82, six is that if human rulers or judges can in some sense be called gods in light of their role as representatives of God, this designation is even more appropriate for the one who truly is the son of God. Or maybe said it in a different way, MacArthur, if corrupt rulers can be called gods by God himself, it's not a stretch for the incorruptible, perfect, sinless, righteous son of God to be called God. Jesus is saying, if Psalm 82, six is saying this, then how much more true is it about me, the son of God? And he's basing his whole argument in the Old Testament. Verse 35 says, scripture cannot be broken. Jesus goes to an agreed upon authority, the Old Testament. The Jews knew it was true. And the crazy impressive thing is that Jesus takes an obscure Psalm and a random verse in that Psalm and picks a word. But he knows that the Jews couldn't fight back on that one. Even a word within a random verse within an obscure passage, they go, it's all true. You don't mess with scripture. So Jesus has a foundation to stand on as he goes to the Old Testament and makes this argument. So if all that was like really confusing, basically in verse 30, Jesus is claiming deity. And then verses 34 through 36, he is defending his deity using the Old Testament. And then verse 37 through 38, he points to his works one last time. This is his final claim of deity in his public ministry. And he is giving the Jewish people one more opportunity to believe. But unfortunately, what we see is that they refuse to believe. They had made up their mind. In verse 39, it says, then they were trying again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. They reject Jesus one more time. And the evidence of that is them trying to seize him. Now, I don't know how Jesus like always gets out of these situations, but I do know what's true is that ultimately his hour had not come yet. And as we learned last week, Jesus decides when he lays down his life. And this was not that time. But unfortunately, what this does show us, these people didn't believe. And they were heading on a trajectory where they were going to die in their sins. But it doesn't end that way. It's pretty beautiful how it ends, actually. Jesus goes across the Jordan River to where John the Baptist was. And what we see there is that many people actually did believe that he is God, that he is Messiah. Another example, some believe, some reject. Why? It's because Jesus is putting a polarizing reality in front of people laying at their feet going, what are you gonna do with this? And that reality is what we just talked about. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is our good shepherd and Jesus is God, exclamation point. If you want one sentence that sums it all up, Jesus is who he says he is. If we stop and think about it, all three of these things had to be true for our salvation, especially that last one. So I'll end with this. I think, you know, as we walk through the book of John, um, 
We've talked a lot about the reality that Jesus is God, right? We've, we've talked about this multiple times. Um, so we often say that Jesus is God, but we, we don't always say why he had to be God. So let me ask that. Why was it necessary that Jesus was God as he came to earth? It's pretty simple. If Jesus was not God and is not God, then when he came to earth and died on that cross, it would have been an insufficient sacrifice. If Jesus wasn't perfect God, then that means he was born a sinful man and sinners do not perfect themselves. Sinners can only improve themselves. If Jesus is just this great teacher and great man like every other religion makes him out to be, then he himself would also need a savior. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is God. Not only that, he is God who came in the flesh. Colossians 2.9 says that for the, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Pair that with Romans 8.3. This will be on the screen. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. The incarnation of Christ, the reality that he came in the flesh was necessary for our salvation. Jesus had to come in the flesh to defeat sin in the flesh. Like Jake said in our teacher meeting, salvation cannot be by proxy. You can't delegate this one out. You had to come. Jesus had to come in the flesh as a person. We needed God himself to come to the earth to save us. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus came in the flesh, fully man, fully God, went to the cross, took on the wrath of God and rose uh, from the grave. And this is the good news of the gospel. The Jewish people in this passage were exposed to that reality that Jesus is Messiah, good shepherd, but for sure that Jesus is God. And the question or the invitation that was given to them was, do you believe? And that's the same invitation that is for you this morning. If you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the question and invitation is given to you. Do you believe? It's an invitation to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be brought into his flock as your good shepherd. And if you do believe, I, I really do hope that this passage would be such an anchor to your soul. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That is great news for us Christians. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are eternally grateful for who you are, that you are Messiah, that you are our good shepherd who provides and protects us, uh, but also that you are God. You said you were with your words, you showed you were, with your works, and then you completed what needed to be accomplished for our salvation on the cross. Only God himself could take on the wrath that we deserve, rise from the grave, and then turn around and offer us the free gift of salvation by believing. Father, we're so grateful for the good news of the gospel. And Jesus, because you are Lord, because you are God, we worship you. And as we sing these last couple of songs, 
I pray, Jesus, that you would stir in our heart a continued growth in love for you and desire to worship you because of who you are and what you've done. So Jesus, we're grateful for everything that you've done for us. And it's in your name we pray, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.